We have to understand why our children are overusing technology. And then we can use the same exact four steps with them to help them form healthy habits with the technology. So we can sit down with our kids of, of any reasonable age and we can help them make time for traction. You're listening to Near Ayal on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. So today we are talking to Nir Ayal, who is covering a really important topic that I think really all of our listeners are going to be able to relate to. And it's the topic of distraction and really especially how much technology has become something that is such a huge part of our lives, that is something that we are responding to on a, a really frequent basis. And um, Niriyal is actually not a mental health professional. He's someone who works more in the business and technology field, but he found acceptance and commitment therapy and fell in love with it. 
And it's one of the things that we talk about today in the episode and that he talks about in his book, Indistractable, as a way for managing internal triggers that are the feelings, thoughts that have us turn toward email, text messages, Slack, apps, all of it. And the other thing he talks about too are the external triggers, the the notifications and bings and dings. And I, I just found talking to him so fascinating and so helpful. And I've already started implementing a number of changes in my own life to try to become more indistractable. So Diana, I'm wondering what you thought of the episode. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot about this concept of being distracted because I feel it in my own life of my head sometimes feeling like it's just going to blow up with all the texts that I need to respond to and the emails that I've left unresponded and the slack that now Jill and all of us have created to try and compartmentalize our off the clock podcast from all the other work that we're doing. And it becomes overwhelming and a burden and stressful. And it all exists within this phone that I'm looking at when I really want to be looking at my kids or, you know, watching the school play or whatever it is. And what I like about his approach is, yes, certainly these are new technologies that we're trying to figure out how to respond to them. But the processes involved are old ones of us experiencing discomfort and looking for a strategy to get away from it. And so this combination of using more acceptance-based strategies of noticing and experiencing discomfort, what is actually a way I can deal with that discomfort that's more values aligned than going to my phone this moment with more behavioral strategies of how do I set up my technology in a way that it's supporting me and staying aligned with my values? is I think the sweet spot for us. And it requires some thoughtfulness and requires some slowing down and not just letting it take over. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm so curious, Jill, what you're doing. I think the time boxing is what I've used most, which is really scheduling time for the things that I need to do. Because of course, you know, technology is a requirement for us to live our lives. And I think that's one of the most important points he makes is, we're not vilifying our phones. We need them to live by, but we want to get more deliberate and conscious about when and how we're using them. And I've noticed for me, the biggest challenge has been recently where I've had a book launch and there's this expectation of being all over social media all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy for that to become an enormous distraction. And so I'm trying to find a way to really schedule this into my calendar and only use social media during the times that I've set aside so that it doesn't become a distraction when I've planned to do other things that are important to me. Right. Or even just doing things that aren't all that important, but we don't need to be on our phone with like at the grocery store or, you know, when I'm waiting in line at Trader Joe's, if I'm checking my email versus just being in line at Trader Joe's and seeing people. Right. (laughs) Just being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's actually quite, at least for me, it's taxing when I feel this um, constant pull to my phone all the time. I don't like the way that feels. It doesn't, I don't feel free in, in, I, in my life. I could not agree more. And I think the other thing that he talks about that our listeners will really like toward the end that I think many of us, again, struggle with and care about is how to raise indistractable kids and how to have indistractable 
relationships. So enjoy this episode of Near Ayal on Psychologists Off the Clock. This is Jill here, and I'm really excited. This is my first official interview as a co-host of Psychologists Off the Clock. And taking a note from Tara Moore from episode 107, I decided to play big and was able to get Nir Ayal here to talk to us a little bit about his amazing new book, Indistractable. Nir Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir founded two tech companies and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he also attended, and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He's the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable received critical acclaim, winning the 2019 Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon, and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. Nier's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today, and he also writes a blog at nearandfar.com. So welcome, Nier. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, so let's jump right in. So you wrote Hooked, I believe, in 2003, and Microsoft sort of famously made it required reading for all of its employees. And I love in the beginning of Indistractable, you quote Paul Virilio, who said, quote, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck, end quote. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey from Hooked to Indistractable and your motivation for writing Indistractable? Sure. So I wrote uh, Hooked actually in 2014. And that was, uh, I, w- I wish I w- had that much foresight to write it back in 2003, but I wasn't that early. <laughs> I wrote oh, it back sorry in- about that's that. Okay, I don't that's know how okay. I got that. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Yeah. So it was published in 2014. So about five or so years ago. And the idea back then was that, you know, the complaint was that so many products and services were really hard for people to use online, right? Back in the, it's hard to remember, but back then we, we were talking about how, you know, the digital divide and why it was only geeks and nerds that could use technology. And the, the big complaint from users was that, you know, why is using your product so hard? So, you know, I feel like I have to use this product. I don't want to use the product. And so the goal behind my work has been to help companies build healthy habits through the products uh, that, that consumers use. And so I've worked with companies in the healthcare space around patient adherence. I've worked with companies to help people exercise more. Fitbod used the hooked model to get people hooked to exercising in the gym. Uh, I've worked with education companies. I was lucky enough to be an investor in Kahoot, the world's largest educational software. And their mission is to get kids hooked onto in-classroom learning using the hooked model as well. Uh, I've worked with companies like the New York Times to get people hooked to reading the news every day. So the goal was always to make these products more usable, more habit-forming, to build good habits in people's lives. But of course, knowing what I know about user habits, there's also this other side, which is that if we can help companies build good habits, there's also the downside of potentially forming bad habits. One of those bad habits is the habit of distraction. And so I really wanted to understand the psychological basis for distraction. 
more than anything, because I had this problem in my own life that I found myself getting distracted time and again, whether I was with my daughter and I'd find myself checking my phone or at work, I would find myself doing one thing as opposed to doing the thing I really wanted to do. And so I really wanted to to explore this topic uh, on, on a deeper level because many of the books that I read about this topic of how to stop getting distracted, how to focus, many of the authors simply blame the technology. And I didn't find that very helpful because number one, you know, we, we can't take this stupid advice of, well, just do a digital detox or, you know, do a 30 day, you know, plan or, you know, that's not practical for most people. We can't just stop using email. We can't stop using our iPhone. These things are very important to us. They, but for many people, their livelihood depends on it. Uh, so it kind of reminded me when I used to be clinically obese, I remember I would go on these fad diets, these 30 day, you know, no sugar for 30 days, no fat for 30 days, no fast food for 30 days. And the result was always the same because on day 31, I would gorge right? and I, because I never figured out what was the real reason why I was overeating. And so that's why I wanted to go into the deeper psychology of why we get distracted to come up with solutions that actually are practical for most people without being this technophobic approach of, of the problem is all the technology. Because I, I really don't think that's the case. The more I researched the topic, uh, two things became very clear. Number one, this is not a new problem. Plato talked about this problem of distraction 2,500 years before the iPhone. Uh, he talked about, he called it akrasia, the tendency for us all to do things against our better interest. And so he wondered, why is that? Why is that the case that, that we say we're going to do one thing and yet we do something else? Uh, and then the second thing that I noticed is that even when I got rid of the technology, I followed the advice of many of these books. And I said to myself, fine, I'll get a flip phone. And I got this, this phone, you know, the kind we used to use a few decades ago. I got one of those. And then I, I got myself a word processor with no internet connection. So I could finally focus. And I would sit down at my desk and I'd start working. And then I'd say, you know, um, there's that book on my bookshelf. I probably should, should look at some research that I, I've been meaning to dig up in that book. Let me just do that for real quick. Or let me organize my desk. Or let me just take out my trash real quick. And I kept getting distracted despite the fact that the technology that is so often blamed wasn't really part of my life anymore. And so that kind of led me to, to question that hypothesis. And it turns out led me on this, on this really interesting journey to uncover the root cause of the problem. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes this book so special is exactly that, that you do both. You talk about the internal processes that lead us to be tempted to be distracted. And then you also give a lot of these really applied practical strategies, both how we can address these kind of internal experiences as well as the external experiences. Mm -hmm. So I definitely want to dig in yeah. to some of those. But before we do that, one of the things that you distinguish between, of course, you talk about distraction, and then you also talk about the opposite of that, yeah. being traction. So can you tell us a little bit about the difference between those and maybe give some common examples? Sure, sure. So, yeah, this is a really, really important point. It's probably the best place to start is to understand what distraction is, we have to understand what distraction is not. So most mm -hmm. people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of distraction? Most people will say focus, right? Focus is the opposite of distraction, but I actually don't agree. The opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction, that both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is defined as any action 
that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can become a distraction. So this is what would happen in my life. I would sit down on my desk and I would say, okay, now I'm going to get to work. I'm going to stay focused. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to work on that big project I've been putting off. Here I go. But first, let me check email, right? <laughs> let, me, let me do that one easy thing on my to-do list real quick. Uh, and, and I would allow myself to get distracted without realizing it was distraction. Right, because this was something worky. Right, I was. I have to check email. That's a productive task, isn't it? No. Mm-hmm. What happens is, is that distraction tricks us. You know, if you're checking Facebook or playing Candy Crush at work, that's an obvious distraction. You're clearly slacking off. But if you're checking email when what you really plan to do was to work on that big project you've been putting off, that is just as much of a distraction. But you don't even understand it's a distraction. You have allowed distraction to trick you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. So that's why defining distraction is so important. The only way you can define distraction is to know what is traction. So just as anything can be distraction, I argue anything can be traction. That you know, the part of the popular narrative that we hear these days is that, oh, social media is bad for you and video games are bad for you and technology is bad for you. That's rubbish. There's very little evidence that shows that it's it's very oversimplifies. The media loves it, ironically enough, because big media is in the same exact business as big tech. They want you to spend as much time reading their websites and clicking down the rabbit hole of more and more news content that's not made for your best interest. It's made for their best interest to keep you clicking. Because look, the New York Times is in the same exact business as Facebook. They monetize your eyeballs. Everybody wants your attention. They do not have your best interest at heart, but they know that telling you this story, that technology is melting your brain, fear sells, right? And so they know that that's the kind of story you'll keep clicking on, but there's nothing wrong with these technologies. And the data proves if you talk to people in the field who actually do these studies, they'll tell you that there's much more nuance here than good versus evil, black and white. It's about how you use it, how much you use it, who is using it, and what you would be doing instead of using it. So I argue there's nothing wrong with using Facebook. There's a lot of benefits to it. There's nothing wrong with watching a movie on Netflix, watching sports on TV. None of this stuff is bad for you. It's not necessarily a distraction. As long as you use these products and services according to your values, and most importantly, according to your schedule, not the app makers. So what I did in my life, I took these former distractions like Facebook and email and Twitter and all of these distractions And I turn them into traction by simply making time for them in my day. So now on my calendar, I have time for those activities. So this is a really, really important point to understand anything can be distraction and anything can be traction. And the difference is whether we are doing those things with intent, whether we have put forethought into doing those tasks or whether we're doing them mindlessly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it makes me think a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a therapy that the co-hosts and I all practice, not only in our therapy rooms, but in our own lives. And of course, values is a huge part of that. And you use the word values to talk about traction. And, you know, I think what really stands out to me about this is this idea that 
it's all about making conscious, deliberate choices right. and not just being on autopilot, which is, I think, what so many of us are so guilty of mm. that you see that red notification or you hear that ding and it, you just automatically turn to it without really giving it much thought. Right. Um, and I, I want to, I want to quote you to you. <laughs> so this is sort of related to, to what we're talking about here. So in the book, you say, when we think we're seeking pleasure, we're really avoiding the pain of wanting mm-hmm. and that distraction is always an unhealthy escape from reality. And so um, it's there that you start talking a little bit about the root causes and how our triggers can be either internal or external. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those triggers. So the difference between internal and external, and then maybe we can talk a little bit how to respond to triggers specifically. And of course, people will have to get the book to get all the good <laughs> sure. juicy stuff, yeah. but we can talk about maybe a, maybe a few of your favorites. Absolutely. Yeah. So in your mind, you should be able to v- envision a, a, an, a number line with an arrow pointing to the right that's leading towards traction, and then an arrow to the left pointing towards distraction. So now that you can see that number line, I want you to imagine two arrows pointing towards the center, bisecting that horizontal line. So two vertical arrows pointing up and down, bisecting that horizontal line. Those two arrows pointing inward represent the external triggers and the internal triggers. The external triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction. Now, the external triggers is where we tend to blame our distractions. We blame our iPhones, we blame our Facebook, we blame email, we blame people around us for getting us distracted. And clearly, those external triggers certainly can lead to either traction or distraction. They're not all bad, right? If uh, your phone buzzes and says, oh, now it's time to go work out, or now it's time for lunch with your, your spouse, or whatever it might be, that's helpful if it's leading you towards something you plan to do. So it's not that they're always bad. Now, those can also lead you towards distraction. If you're in the middle of one thing and you get some notification and now you're on your phone as opposed to being fully present with someone you love, well, now it's led you towards distraction. But as bad as those external triggers are, and there are lots of methods in the book that I talk about, lots of tactics and strategies for hacking back those external triggers, the most important place to start has to be with the internal triggers. Because it turns out that the source of most distraction is not what is happening outside of us, but rather what is going on inside of us. That most distraction starts from within. It starts because of an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. And this is really the answer to Plato's 2,500-year-old question of why do we do things against our better interest? We do things against our better interest for the same reason we do everything and anything. It's not just about why do we get distracted, it's what's the root of human motivation. And many people have this notion that motivation is about carrots and sticks. You know, this is Freud's pleasure principle. It's all about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But it turns out neurologically, that's that's actually a, an obfuscation of what's happening neurologically. Neurologically speaking, the way the brain gets us to act is not through pleasure and pain. It's actually pain all the way down. 
that even the pursuit of a pleasurable sensation is itself psychologically destabilizing. Wanting, craving, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically that's exactly what's going on. And we know this to be true. It's common sense when we think about this physiologically. If you go outside and it's cold, your brain tells you this is uncomfortable, put on a coat. And if you walk back inside, now you're too hot, your brain says, take it off. So all of our physiological reactions, everything that makes us do things, you know, things that involve action in, in our world, are spurred to escape discomfort. And the same is true for our psychological reactions. So when we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check uh, sports scores, uh, Reddit, Pinterest, the news. Oh my goodness. You know, people say, oh, I check the news because I want to be a concerned citizen. I want to make sure that I know what's going on. The real reason is that we love to know that someone else, you know, focus on someone else's problem somewhere halfway around the world that we have no chance of actually doing anything about because thinking about their problems helps us escape thinking about our own issues. That's why we are habitually checking the news all the time. And so mm -hmm. if we don't understand this basic fact, if we don't understand that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, we will never escape this problem of distraction. What this leads us to is this conclusion that if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that therefore means that time management is pain management. That it doesn't matter what guru's techniques you're using or life hacks, fundamentally none of the tactics and techniques work if we don't first understand what is going on inside of us. And I, I you know, the, the reason I, I study this field, the reason I'm so interested in, in this area is very much from personal experience, right? They say research is me-search. Uh, and I remember when I was clinically obese, uh, I'd be lying to you if I told you I ate because I ate too much because I was hungry more than average. It wasn't because of hunger. It was because I was eating my feelings, right? I was eating when I felt bored. I was f eating when I felt lonely. I was eating when I felt ashamed of about how much I had eaten. And so that became my coping mechanism. And it's exactly what we do today with our distractions, be they digital distractions or any other distraction. It's all about a desire to escape discomfort in a harmful as opposed to healthful manner. Yeah, in ACT, we would call that experiential avoidance. Exactly, right. And, you know, the idea being that it works or we wouldn't do it. Right. Right. It, it's really, really effective in the short term. And I think going back to what you were talking about earlier is it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all bad. It's not bad to look at Facebook just because Facebook might make you feel less bored for a few minutes, but it really comes down to is there a cost? To doing that? And is it costing you traction? Is it taking you away That's right. from doing things that are meaningful or important in your life in some way? I just wanted to add as well that uh, another addition to this line of thinking that I think today we oftentimes hear that feeling bad is bad. Right. And particularly this is promoted among the, in the self-help industry, we hear this quite a bit that, uh, that, you know, if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with life, if you ever feel down, something's wrong with you. And so it's no surprise that when we bombard people with this message, that if you ever feel down, 
that, that that's a bad thing. You have to reach for something to take away that, that discomfort. Well, it's no surprise that people do that. They habituate to whatever they can find to quickly relieve that emotional discomfort, whether it's stress, anxiety, uncertainty, fatigue, whatever it might be. And so part of the message I want to spread is that feeling bad isn't bad, that it's an evolutionary adaptive trait that our species evolved to constantly seek more, right? To cons- And the only way to do that is through dissatisfaction, right? It's, it's our perpetual disquietude that kept us hunting and inventing and striving to do more, to improve our lot in life. And so it's not about squashing that sensation. It's about harnessing it so that it moves us towards traction rather than distraction. Mm-hmm. So are there any specific ways that you recommend kind of managing these internal triggers other than just, you know, just trying to feel better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the first section of the book, the, the very first step to becoming indistractable is about mastering the internal triggers and mastering the internal triggers. I break down into three key tactics and those three key tactics are reimagining the trigger reimagining the task and reimagining our temperament. And the first one, reimagining the trigger, I draw quite a bit from uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. I'm a big fan and it's, you know, well-established mm-hmm. research in that field as, as we both know. And so some of the techniques that I mentioned that you'll be very familiar with are techniques like the 10 minute rule, which has been around for a very long time, where instead of instantaneously giving into that distraction, which we have habituated ourselves to doing, where every time we feel stressed, we check our phone. Every time we feel lonely, we're checking Facebook. Every time we're anxious, we check the news to try and break that habitual cycle and to tell ourselves, okay, I can give in to that distraction. I can give in to that thing that I I know I'm trying to resist in 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, if we can just spend those 10 minutes surfing the urge, as we say, exploring that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt, a lot of people, when it comes to distraction, they tend to fall into two categories. I call them the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, they say, oh, it's technology's fault. It's Facebook's fault. It's my iPhone's fault. My favorite, it's these times we live in's fault. Of course, that's always been the complaint. There's never been a time. There's never been the good old days. People have always been freaking out that the world is going to end. It's a habitual state of (laughs) of human nature. Uh, And and so, and of course, there's nothing we can do about that. We are powerless. These technologies aren't going anywhere. We're not going to turn back the hands of time. So being a blamer is ineffective, as is being a shamer. A shamer says, it's me. I'm the problem. I have a short attention span. I must be lazy. I must not be cut out for this job. Uh, and, and so what we do when we shame ourselves, we feel even worse about our situation. And what do we do when we feel bad? We feel more internal triggers and we're even more likely to seek escape from that discomfort. And so we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be what we call claimers. Claimers claim responsibility, not for the way they feel. You can't control the way you feel. That's like asking yourself to to, uh, not feel the urge to sneeze. You can't control what you feel. What you can control is how you respond to those feelings, hence the word responsibility. So a claimer claims responsibility for how they will react 
to those uncomfortable internal states by finding new habits, new routines to deal with that discomfort in a healthier fashion. So they use tools like the 10-minute rule, for example, that I mentioned earlier, as the new habitual reaction uh, instead of mindlessly reaching for something to distract themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really a practice of willingness that I can you know, open up and make space for whatever the discomfort is, whether it's boredom or stress or any other sort of uncomfortable emotion let that be there, which requires awareness to begin with, right? Like sort of even noticing that that's happening and not being on autopilot as we normally are and making space and then being more in touch with what, what would traction look like? You know, what, what is that deliberate choice I want to make that's moving me towards something that's important to me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said about uh, reimagining our temperament. I think uh, the book is very heavy in terms of the psychology around self-image and how long-term behavior change really is a factor of identity change. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation and folk psychology out there that really does hurt people. Uh, one of the, 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 areas I talk about is this idea of ego depletion. Ego depletion, you know, I, I did, before I even knew the term, I definitely exhibited this. I would come home from work and I would say, oh, I've had such a hard day at work today. I feel spent in air quotes. I feel spent. I have no more ability to make good decisions. This is kind of the narrative I had. So give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and, re- and, and watch Netflix because I've got nothing left. And in fact, this idea that willpower is a depletable resource actually had some 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 credibility in the scientific community for a few years. Uh, there was a, a researcher that actually wrote a whole book about this idea of ego depletion. But then as so often is the case in the social sciences, if a study sounds a little bit too good to be true, we replicate the study. And it turns out that meta-analyses found that there is very little evidence for ego depletion, for this idea that willpower is a depletable resource, except in one group of people. There were, in fact, one group of people who really did exhibit this trait of ego depletion. They really did run out of willpower, uh, just like someone would run out of gas in a gas tank. And that group of people, the only group of people, were people who believed that willpower was a depletable resource. (laughs) Wow, that's so so interesting. This is such an important point because what we see happening today when we are told constantly that there's nothing you can do about these addictive technologies that are hijacking everyone's brain, what we are teaching people is learned helplessness. We're Mm -hmm. teaching people not even to try. And of course, what do people do if they feel like they're helpless? If they feel like, well, there's nothing I can do about the problem, it becomes so. Just as ego depletion, people who believe that they were spent acted accordingly. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the, some of the research on stress too, that Kelly McGonigal talks a lot about. And she also does work with willpower um, that, you know, really the negative effects of stress all boil down to how you appraise your stress. And if you see it as helpful or hurtful, it is such essentially. That's right. That's yeah, exactly that's, right. Yeah. We see so this with, with addiction treatment as well, that mm-hmm. it turns out that that mindset is as important to the likelihood of, of someone recovering after an addiction treatment program, uh, that mindset is as important as physical dependency. So we're, this, wow. we're talking about methamphetamine, uh, people who are struggling with methamphetamine addiction, alcoholics, the conviction of whether they can change is as important as the chemicals streaming through their bloodstream. Think about that for a minute, right? Wow. That the likelihood of them uh, uh, successfully completing a recovery program has as much to do with whether they believe they can do it as it does their level of physical dependency. 
okay, so we need to believe that we can get control over our phones and our social media and our text messages and we'll be successful. That's, that's a big part of it because it, the self-sabotage is, is real, <laughs> especially when it comes to our relationship with others. You know, I hear so many parents saying, my kids are addicted to Fortnite. There's nothing I can do, right? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? <laughs> the algorithms have controlled my brain. Well, and it can uh, even become an excuse, a rationalization, because it's sort of easier to throw your hands up and, you know, assume that we're just addicted and there's nothing we can do. It kind of gives you an excuse to keep doing these things that feel good, even if it's a distraction and taking that's you away from traction. Right. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Because when there's an addiction, that's why that that word I cringe at that word because mm-hmm. the 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 media loves to use that term addiction. That uh, it describes anything we like a lot is suddenly an addiction. When we don't talk about any other pathology this way, we don't talk about cancer or Alzheimer's this way. But somehow everybody's addicted. No, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Some substances do addict some people. Clearly, I mean it's common sense. Alcohol is highly addictive, much more addictive than Facebook, I promise you. And yet only a small fraction of people out there are alcoholics. Not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner is an alcoholic, clearly. Uh, And yet somehow this technology we call addictive, and I think it's one, really disrespectful to people who actually have the pathology. And two, Mm -hmm. it's exactly as you said, it, it lets people absolve themselves of responsibility because when I call something an addiction, there's a pusher, there's a dealer, there's someone doing it to me. But when I face reality and call it what it really is, a distraction, ooh, oh shoot, now I got to do something about it. That's no right. fun. <laughs> right. It's my job to fix right. this. Yeah, oh, exactly. No. <laughs> so you have this great model that I think helps understand all this that I think the listeners will relate to that you, it's the fog behavioral model. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So this comes from the work of BJ Fogg, who I knew at Stanford when I used to teach there. And uh, Fogg has this has this equation in the Fogg uh, behavior model that says B equals MAT and B stands for behavior equals motivation, uh, ability and a trigger. Uh, so it's a little hard to explain verbally without drawing it out. But he basically says that for any human behavior to occur, you need a sufficient level of motivation. Uh, the subject has to have a sufficient level of ability. The behavior needs to be easy enough to do and a trigger must be present to prompt the the behavior. It's actually a version of Lewin's equation. Uh, If you go back way to the time of Kurt Lewin, he said that behavior is a function of a person in their environment. Uh, And so it's, it's, it's an updated version of that in some ways. Okay. And so part of what we need to do to change behavior is to address some of these triggers. And we've talked Mm -hmm. about the internal triggers. So let's talk a little bit about the external triggers, because you have a lot of great you know, concrete strategies and examples and, you know, too many to talk about in one podcast, which is why people should buy the book. It is awesome. Thank you. Um, But tell me a little bit about what some of your personal favorites are. Sure. So external triggers, again, these are the pings and dings, all of these things in our environment that can prompt us to either traction or distraction. And, and we need to remember that many of these external triggers can be very helpful, right? Some of them can lead us towards traction. So the key question is to ask ourselves, which of these triggers are serving us versus which are we serving? And so for any of these triggers that you that are not serving you, we have to find ways to get rid of those external triggers. So I call this hacking back. And the reason I call it hacking back, you know, in computer hacker parlance, to hack means to gain unauthorized access. 
And it is clear that media companies today, whether that's social media, whether that's big media, you know, if it's if it's uh, traditional media, uh, the television, all of these things, uh, whether it's old technology or new technology, all of these things are trying to hack your attention. That's how they make money. They want to get access to your time and your mind share because they make money, uh, most of them, based on ad revenue. And even if we're not talking about businesses, when we think about your kids, your boss, your spouse, your friends, all of these things want your time and attention. And they all can be wonderful things in your life, again, if they are serving your values on your schedule versus letting your time and attention be controlled by others. So it turns out actually in the office, in the modern workplace, uh, surveys have found the number one source of distraction at work. The number one source of distraction, it's not the pings and dings on people's phones, it's not your computers. The number one source of distraction turns out to be, according to 80% of survey respondents, other people. Other people are the number one source of external triggers that lead towards distraction. And so there's a, a study I cite in the book that I think is, is a, a really good representation of what we can do about these external triggers when it comes to other people. Part of the reason that this trend uh, is happened, part of the reason that we find ourselves getting so distracted by other people in the workplace is because of this trend towards open floor plan offices that it's been happening over the past several decades. Many of us are not lucky enough to have a door in our office that we can close when we need time to think. We work in open floor plan offices and people stop by our desk and say, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? It's never a quick sec, <laughs> right? <laughs> or let me tell you that bit of office gossip or whatever it might be. And so there's a, there's a really interesting study that I found that led me to, to propose some, some solutions that turned out to be very, very effective. The study I found, I was shocked to discover that it turns out that 200,000 Americans every year are harmed by physicians and nurses dosing out the wrong medication inside hospitals. 200,000 Americans are harmed every year. Most hospitals in America believe that this is just the price of doing business. What are we going to do? People make mistakes. Sorry, we gave you the wrong medication until a group of nurses at UCSF decided to tackle this problem. They wanted to figure out why were nurses dosing out the wrong medication inside hospital settings? What was going on exactly? And of course, the culprit was distraction. That on average, when nurses were dosing out medication, they were interrupted 10 times per their dosing rounds. And so they wanted to figure out what to do about it. And, and just a little sidebar, the reason I'm telling you this story is that even if you're not in the healthcare profession, what was happening inside the minds of these nurses is really important. You see, when the nurses were making these mistakes, sometimes lethal mistakes, they, weren't, they didn't realize what they were doing. They didn't realize that they were harming people. They thought they were doing a great job. And that's exactly what happens to us when we work in a distracted fashion. We think we're doing a great job, right? Everything's going great. And we don't realize that we are doing as well as we are despite the fact that we are constantly distracted. We don't realize what our full potential is, how much better our work performance could be if we weren't constantly distracted. So it turns out these nurses actually came up with an, a brilliant way to reduce this problem by 88%. They nearly eliminated the prescription errors that were happening at UCSF. And here's what they did. It wasn't a multi-million dollar program. It wasn't some amazing new technology. The solution was to get nurses, while they were doing to their medication rounds, the solution was to ask them to wear plastic vests. 
bright red plastic vests that said on the front and back, drug rounds in progress, do not disturb. (laughs) 88% reduction in prescription mistakes. Now, why do I tell you the story? Why did I put it in the book? Is because this is the solution for distraction in the open floor plan office. In every copy of Indistractable, you will find a piece of cardstock in the middle of the book that you tear out, you fold into thirds, it's bright red, it has a stop sign on it, and it says, I am indistractable, please come back later. You put this on your computer monitor as a clear sign to your colleagues that you need some time to think. And that is how we hack back distraction in the workplace. I love it. I loved reading that that study or listening. I listened to the audiobook, so I don't have the red card. Oh, okay. You, you can book. download it actually at indistractable.com. You can get oh, it free. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> anyone I, I who has the audiobook thinking, can get it as well. <laughs> that's great. Well, I was thinking that the the therapist version of that is the literal do not disturb sign that we hang on the, you know, the door hanger that we the hang on hanger, our right, on our right. uh, our doorknobs for our for our doors. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. Can you imagine doing your work without that? <laughs> right? No, I, can, yet, I can't. Right. And somehow millions of people think that they're doing all right, even though they're constantly interrupted. It is very hard to do our best work if we don't have time to focus. And we know as much, you know, I, when I do conferences and speaking engagements, I'll always ask this question. I'll say, how many of you in the room need time to think to do your job, right? Need time for focused work without distraction to time to think almost every hand in the room goes up. And then I ask, well, how many of you have that time planned and accounted for in your schedule? Nobody. Right. Nobody. Somehow everybody else's tasks are more important than the time that we need to do our focused work. And so where does real work get done? You know where it gets done. It gets done after work. It gets done on nights and weekends. And who pays the price? Our kids, our friends, our health pay the price because we don't have that time to disconnect. I was actually thinking I want to hang up the red indistractable sign in my house so that my children read it <laughs> and don't distract me when I'm in the middle of trying to do something. Do you, you think know they pay attention? <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. So I work from home uh, and uh, my wife works from home as well. And we also homeschool our daughter. And so we had this problem, you know, my daughter's now 11 years old and we oftentimes had this problem that, you know, working from home, you, my daughter would come in and distract us while we were trying to do focus work. And so my wife actually bought what we affectionately call the concentration crown. It's this $5 wreath that we bought on Amazon made out of plastic or whatever. And it has these led lights on it. And when she turns it on, it glows. You can't miss it. And so when, when, when our daughter sees mommy has the concentration crown on, that means do not disturb. So what she's done is essentially interrupted that habitual behavior of mommy, I need you. When she, when my daughter sees the concentration crown, oh, it stops her in her tracks and she knows, okay, this is not the time to interrupt mommy. It oh, I love like that. A charm. <laughs> we might have to link to that on Amazon in the show Absolutely, notes so that yeah. everybody can get their, their own concentration crown. I mean, and sure. who doesn't want to wear a light up crown? <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, since we're talking about your daughter, um, one of the sections in the book is talking about raising indistractable kids and also having indistractable relationships. And I loved the way you talked about your own personal approach to screen time with yeah. your daughter. And I think that's something that I don't know a single parent who isn't struggling to try to figure this out. And this was an example, I, I think, if I remember correctly, of an effort pact 
So can you share a little bit of that with our listeners, what an effort pact is and your approach to dealing with this with your own daughter? Sure. So there are four basic strategies to becoming indistractable. So step number one is master the internal triggers, which we talked about a little bit. Step number two is to make time for traction. And that's about planning your time, uh, understanding that you can't call it something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Very, very important point. The third step we talked about a little bit, that's about hacking back the external triggers. The fourth and final step is a fail-safe. It's the last resort to prevent us from getting distracted. And here it's about making pre-commitments. It's about preventing distraction with pacts. And so there are three types of pacts. There's an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. And the one that you mentioned, the, uh, the, the effort pact, is where we put some bit of friction in between us and something we don't want to do. So in my household... Um, this is in the section on how to have indistractable relationships. You see, my wife and I, we've been married for 18 years. And a few years ago, uh, part of the impetus for me to write this book, part of one of the areas that I found I was getting distracted in in my day-to-day life was that um, night after night, my wife and I would go to bed later and later. And not only did our sleep suffer, our sex life suffered. We, weren't have, we didn't have any time to be intimate because I was fondling my iPhone and she was caressing her <laughs> iPad and we had no time for, for quality time together. And so here's what we did. We instituted an effort pact last. We did the other three things first. But as a last resort, we went to the hardware store and we bought ourselves an outlet timer. And this outlet timer will turn on or off anything you plug into it at any time of day or night. So at 10 p.m. in our household, this little outlet timer will shut off whatever's plugged into it. And what's plugged into it? Our internet router. So every night at 10 p.m., the internet shuts off, whether we like it or not. This is is so simple and yet so effective as a last resort. Now, could I, if, if I really wanted the internet to turn back on, could I, you know, go under my desk and fiddle with the plugs and pull it out and pull it back in? Of course I could do that. But I've allowed this effort path to create some friction between me and something I don't want to do so that I can have a moment of mindfulness as opposed to mindlessly continuing to you know, scroll Facebook or check email. I know now that that is going to happen. In fact, now that we've been doing it for so many years, we actually don't even need it because everybody in the household knows, oh, 10 p.m., the internet shuts off. Now we start preparing because we all know it's going to turn off. We start making sure that we're all shut down, everything's in its place, and we can go to bed on time. And of course, my wife and I have a much better love life for it. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's great. And then how do you handle screen time with your daughter? Yeah. So um, it's a weird transition, by the way, to talk about my love life. Not my daughter, but that's okay. We'll do it. Well, that's <laughs> how that's you how, got your daughter. That's how we right? conceived you her. Exactly. Have a daughter, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah. We, so I think in my mind, the most important section in, in Indistractable to me, uh, for me to figure out was this, was this section on how to raise Indistractable kids. And it was not an easy chapter to write, I have to tell you, because um, I didn't want it to be true, <laughs> what I learned. Uh, you know, we as parents, we love to find things that can explain our kids' behavior when they act in ways we don't like. Uh, we love to find a reason for it, whether it's the sugar high, which I hate to burst people's bu- bubble, but turns out the sugar high is false. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. Meta studies find there is no such thing as a sugar high. Uh, but today, the latest boogeyman is, of course, technology. And what I wanted to do was to dive a little deeper and to understand what was really going on. What I discovered was when I uh, dug a layer deeper, I, I came to the conclusion that what is happening today 
can really be explained by what's called the needs displacement hypothesis, the, the work of Desi and Ryan, the founders of self-determination theory. Uh, they claim that when we don't find fulfillment, when we don't find our, our three psychological nutrients of competency, autonomy, and relatedness offline in the real world, we look to fulfill those psychological needs of competency, autonomy, and relatedness in the virtual world online. And I think that what is happening today with our children is that they are at a severe deficit of these three psychological nutrients. That if we think about what has happened uh, over the past several years since the rise of the adoption of smartphones, it coincides with the rise of standardized testing in this country. That 2007, 2008, no child left behind, teaching towards the test, teacher salaries based on test performance results has created a subset of children who are constantly told they are not competent. And when a company comes to them like uh, Fortnite or Minecraft and says, hey, here's a virtual world for you to feel like God, that feels amazing, right? That feeling of competency is something they are missing. Then we think about autonomy. We look at the work of Peter Gray, who has found that children today are more regulated than any generation in history. That the average American child today has 10 times as many restrictions placed upon them as an average adult, twice as many as an incarcerated felon. There is only two places in society where we can tell people where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with, what to wear, and that is school and prison. And so is it any surprise when our kids come home, they want freedom, they want autonomy. And yet we don't give them that freedom and autonomy because for many children, if you are of means, you're putting your kids into swimming lessons and basketball practice and Mandarin lessons and test prep services, kids have no time to just play, to just hang out. And if you don't have the financial means, the media has so scared parents today with stranger danger and fear of kidnapping that many parents force their kids to come straight home and leave them behind a lock and key uh, as opposed to previous generations that were allowed to play. So kids are looking for freedom. They're looking for autonomy. What are they supposed to do when they come home from school? Uh, what are they supposed to do if their, their entire day is scheduled and programmed? They are looking for freedom and autonomy. And of course, they find that in these online worlds. And then finally, when it comes to relatedness, you know, we know that since records have been kept on the statistic of free play, of how much time kids have to socialize without the gaze of, of coaches and teachers and parents, that amount of time is at record historic lows. It used to be that the neighborhoods of this country would sing with the sound of kids playing. Well, we don't see that anymore. We don't hear that anymore because kids don't have that time for free play. And we know that is the most psychologically nourishing thing that you can give to your kid is time with peers. You know, it's, it's a whole nother story. If, if an adult, uh, if a parent or a teacher tells a child how to behave, that's one thing. But if a peer says, look, if you act like a jerk to me, I'm not going to be friends with you. I'm not going to play with you. That is where we learn our place in the world. That is where we, we, we learn how to adapt and how to care for others and have others care for us. So kids don't have that time to play like they used to. And so where do they get to get that psychological nutrient of a relatedness fulfilled? Well, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, WhatsApp, these products are giving them ways to socialize. So we need to be very careful of how, you know, where we put the blame and make sure that we are not addressing just the symptoms as opposed to the disease. The real disease is the, is the lack of fulfillment of these three psychological nutrients. The symptom 
is the behavior of where they're going to fulfill these needs. So that all falls into the bucket of these internal triggers that we have to start there. We have to understand why our children are overusing technology. And then we can use the same exact four steps with them to help them form healthy habits with the technology. So we can sit down with our kids of, of any reasonable age and we can help them make time for traction, right? That there's nothing wrong with two hours or less of extracurricular screen time. No study has found any deleterious effects as long as it's age appropriate. So we can schedule that time for them just like we do for ourselves. We can hack back those external triggers. Uh, I don't think that children need these devices, let alone older technologies like TVs and radios, anything that could possibly interrupt sleep, anything that could trigger some kind of behavior that distracts from sleep is a bad idea to have in their bedroom. So we can hack back the external triggers. We can make sure they know how to use their devices in a way that promotes pro-social behaviors. And finally, we can teach them how to use technology to prevent distraction with PACTs. So there's an explosion of tools and resources out there. Most of them are absolutely free that we can use to help kids prevent distraction by making various pacts. Yeah. Well, this, thank you so much. This has been such an enlightening and informative interview. And I have been using a lot of these techniques. I use the time boxing. I've changed a lot of the external triggers and notifications and bings and dings. Um, and have just found it really to be incredibly useful and I'm helpful so you know, awesome. in, in my own life. I just had a book come out recently and it's sort of, I've had to use a lot more social media than I'm used to. So I'm still trying to figure out how to, but I, how to do that. But I've been using time boxing to try to make sure that that's um, being done in an indistractable way. I love it. I um, love it. So I, I cannot recommend this book to everybody enough. Run out and grab it, especially those sections on indistractable relationships and kids, I think, are incredibly helpful. And so many of our listeners are act people, so to speak. And it's really consistent with what we do. So I think it'll be a great fit for our listeners. Yeah, that means um, a lot coming from you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, I so appreciate that you came on and that you were my very first interview as a co-host of Psychologist Off the Clock. I've been interviewed myself twice, but this is my first official interview as a co-host. So it's very exciting. Um, so tell everybody where we can find you and then we'll make sure that we put it in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far, nearandfar.com. And if you go to nearandfar.com, there's actually a complimentary 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the, into the final edition of the book. So it's available there as a complimentary resource for you. If you do end up buying the book, make sure, just want to give you a special note here, make sure you keep the order number. If you buy it on Amazon or your local bookseller, doesn't matter. Make sure you keep the order number. Go to indistractable.com. If you enter in that order number, you'll actually get access to a complimentary video course, as well as to a list of resources and other tools that you won't want to miss, all at indistractable.com. That is fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Nir. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage.
We're at offtheclockpsych.com. <laughs>